Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. Today's episode is with Taylor Ward. Taylor is a professional runner, amongst so many other things, who has just done incredible things as a runner. Just the 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 width and breadth of what she's able to accomplish are legit. She's qualified for two Olympic marathon trials. She's run a 230 marathon. She has placed very highly in a number of prestigious marathons as well. That's not normally our jam. Those people are super interesting, and I love hearing them on podcasts. They're just not usually on the Rambling Runner podcast. That's not our lane. But I was excited to have her on because when I talk to a pro, I really want to take a deep dive into a topic that really relates to you, the dedicated amateur runners who listen to this show. And that's exactly what we do in this episode. Over the past year, Taylor has been battling a hip injury, something that maybe you're dealing with hip injury. Maybe you're dealing with injury of some sort. And I want to see what it's like for a pro runner to spend an extended period of time rehabbing and going through this whole process. It's never linear, not even close. How many cul-de-sacs have you gone down um, when it comes to you know coming back from an injury? Right, It's almost never a straight line. It's always this wild and twisty road with dead ends here, there, and seemingly sometimes it feels like dead ends everywhere. And that is why I wanted to talk to Taylor today to get exactly what's been going on with her, the positives, the negatives, the neutral, and just the whole the whole thing. And that's exactly what we do. We literally spend almost an hour taking a deep dive into this process. And I found it to be incredibly useful. So before we get into it, I do want to say I'm so excited. So if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a coach from McCurdy Trained. I love coaching dedicated amateur runners. I truly do. And I'm really excited. So what we're going to be doing uh, now is a lot of people who maybe have never had a coach before, who had a coach and maybe they want to get a new one or not a new one, like not leave a coach, but say they had a coach in the past. They're not currently being coached by somebody and they're just not sure whether a coach is a good fit for them or should they should even have one to begin with. I know that pain. I know I've, I've been there. I know exactly how that feels. So I'm actually now offering uh Quite basically, coaching consultation calls. So if you want to have a consultation call with me to say, hey, is this a good fit? Is Matt a good fit? Is having a running coach at all a good fit? I'd be happy to chat with you. All you have to do is send me an email or send me a note. You can either just DM me on Instagram, rambling underscore runner, or you can just send me an email, ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to sit down, have a chat with you, see if it's a good fit. And if it is, hey, maybe we move forward. If it isn't, maybe I can give you a recommendation on what could be a good fit, because that is also an option as well. Basically, I'm here to help you. If I'm a good running coach for you, or if I know someone who is, I'd be happy to let you know in either one of those cases. So let's get into it with Taylor Ward. Taylor Ward, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I've been a fan of yours for some time. Knowing that like, you even knew what the podcast was was a surprise and delight for me uh, personally. So it, it really is exciting to have you on. And uh, one of the things that I brought up to you when we were kind of exchanging messages back and forth was the fact that, you know, this kind of is a show for and about dedicated amateur runners. 
you are certainly a dedicated runner, but you're also not an amateur, right? So you're a professional in a lot of ways. You've done some amazing things as a runner in your life. So not really the caliber of runner we usually talk to. So it's exciting to have you on because in these circumstances, it's fun to, when I talk to a professional runner, usually it's under the guise of talking about certain things that can easily pertain to just the general public, right? The kind of people who would normally listen to this podcast to say, hey, not only is Taylor Ward unbelievably fast and super cool, but I can really relate to what she's talking about and I can kind of take what she's saying and maybe put it into my training or my life or part of my athletic career. So that's kind of a fun and exciting thing. So just a long-winded introduction to say, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you again for having me. All right. So last talk. So about a year ago, you were in the U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon, like so many of the country's best runners. And I bring that up to say because we're basically a month away from the track trials as well. So you you ran in that. And the reason that we're talking now is basically what happened kind of like after that. Like the 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 process you have gone through, which was, you know, you're, you had a bad hip. You had to have surgery on that. Can you walk us through the steps of, you know, kind of when that hip issue started to percolate and kind of its progression as an injury in the early stages? Yeah, absolutely. So I did run the Olympic trials last year uh, in February, end of February. And after that, I did my typical, you know, post-marathon recovery where we took a couple down weeks and then started building back up the mileage. And I was on a long run. I was starting to build up uh, my mileage again. And I stopped, you know, took a little detour off on a trail. And then I was coming back up to the main path. And I took a step up and kind of felt something in my hip. And I'd had that before, so I didn't really think much of it. I just kind of was like, oh, that bothered me a little bit. But it was early on in my run, and I finished the run. It was a great long run. And then, you know, the next day and the several days after that, it just continued to hurt and it started to get worse. And so um, the next week I couldn't even work out uh, because it was hurting so much. So we tried to back off doing all the things that you would usually do for a little flare up, if you will. And it just wasn't getting better. It wasn't, we couldn't figure out what it was. We first thought it was a psoas strain. And so we were treating it like that. And then after continuing to do PT and time off, I actually ellipticaled for a long time and it, I would take a lot of time in elliptical. And then as soon as I'd go back to running, it was like I had never done anything because it was just still exactly the same. So that's when we got to a point where we said, okay, let's take a look. Let's get some x-rays. And then we got an MRI. The x-rays did show that I have what's called a cam deformity. And so that is where the head of the femur is not completely round. There's a little bit of an extra bump on the femur. And that was what was rubbing against my labrum. Man, so much. So (laughs) much is going on. It's funny because you went through that like in one minute. That process for you took a lot longer than one minute, certainly to live all of those experiences (laughs) and all of those pains, uh, literally and metaphorically. So let's go back into the beginning part of the process of you that first week taking a step back, like, okay, this I have to I have to stop running this week, right? At that point, how often in your life have you been able to like just take a few days off and some little niggle that pops up is able to kind of dissipate, you can kind of get back on track just by taking that real quick step back. Again, just two or three days. 
Yeah, I've actually had to do that so many times throughout running and um, throughout the years, and it usually resolves. That's usually the best thing. And I've found that uh, personally for me, I pride myself in not getting too worked up about, you know, missing a day or missing two days because in the long run, it does keep you healthier. You know, it's something that you can step back. Um, and usually if you do that and you address it, then it doesn't turn into something. I've actually talked to people a lot about this. Um, because some, it's easy for us to get really hung up on numbers. We're trying to hit a certain mileage for the week or we're trying to hit a certain amount of time each day. And sometimes that can just force us into injury rather than stepping back and saying, Hey, it's okay. I can take a day off. I can take two days off. It's not going to ruin my fitness by doing that. Um, and I've found that I refer to it kind of like a car accident. You can either hit it like a T-bone <laughs> and really have a bad injury or you can kind of side swipe and maybe you just get a little a bump on the side and I feel like if you do that when you're training if you have a little niggle or something that pops up you usually can just side swipe and then you can continue training and it doesn't really sideline you. So were you surprised that a week after the injury kind of popped up were you surprised that it was still around or after the first day or two did you have an inkling that this might be a longer term thing? Yeah, I certainly did. I was surprised that it was lingering as long as it was. And I was actually doing a tempo run when it just got to its worst point when I said, okay, I need to stop. This isn't, this isn't a good pain and this isn't something that's going away. It's actually getting worse. And so that was really hard because I stopped the workout and had to call my coach and say, Hey, something's going on. This is really not getting any better. And I certainly didn't imagine it would be as long as it has been. And what would entail later. I didn't think I'd have to have surgery from that, but it was definitely a bummer and something that, you know, no runner wants to have happen, but it happens. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the initial attempts at, at finding a diagnosis, right? So this is something that so many of us go into. We're so hopeful, right? That first or second PT appointment, we're there, we're really, we have all the trust and faith in them and rightfully so, but at the same time, it's like, all right, this is going to be it. We're going to find out the problem. We're going to have the plan. Here we go. We're on the magic road right now. So with that being said, we kind of know that that wasn't actually what happened. So what was that process for you in terms of trying to find a diagnosis and how many kind of dead ends did you end up going down um, along the way? So I'm very fortunate. I do have a PT that I'd been working with before um, the Olympic trials, and she's been so awesome to work with. She's at Body Tune Physical Therapy. And going to her, she we thought it was just going to be something like, okay, let, something's tight. Let's do some dry needling. Let's do a rub out maybe and see if it resolves, get you know some anti-inflammatories or some ice, and <laughs> hopefully it resolves in a couple of days. Uh, but the thing that was hard is where it was hurting in my hip, there are a lot of structures anatomically that are there. So the psoas muscle from the abdomen kind of comes down and it comes over that pelvic area. And then there's the adductors coming in from the leg and all of that's just all right in that area. So when all this started to happen, when we were trying to figure out what it was, uh, I actually kind of thought back to my buildup before the Olympic trials because I had had a couple of flare-ups in my adductors. Um, and so kind of going back to the cam deformity, this is something that's a structural issue. It's not like it was an acute injury, even though I do have a day when I remember it actually bothering me. 
Uh, it was probably something that was building up over time. It was just wearing down over time. And I think that building up for the trials, I was actually doing a lot of hill work because the Atlanta course was extremely hilly. And because of the structure that I had, it actually causes a hip impingement. So going up hills with that knee drive actually was probably agitating it more. So in retrospect, I think I was starting to have signs of that before the trials, but didn't realize it because I was still able to train and run. Uh, afterwards, it just was not getting better. And we we did think it was a psoas strain or psoas, or the adductors. And we were trying to figure out why it wasn't healing because usually the muscles, once you do give it a little bit of time, it should heal. Um, so then I did a lot of elliptical. At the time, I didn't have an elliptical. And so I would go to my coach's house. This was all during the COVID situation when everything was getting locked down. So my coach was fortunate to have an elliptical and let me go and use that. And I do the elliptical. I ended up purchasing a bike um, just to try and get another form of cross training so I could get outside. And again, with the hip impingement, that was a bad idea because that actually ended up making it worse. That, that, is, that, is that harder on your hip than actually running? Well, with the impingement, it was just because of that knee drive, getting my hip into that, that flexion was actually worse for it. Did you get a refund on the bike? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold on to it for later. <laughs> there you go. Um, that's why your road bikes, man, triathletes. It's, it's like you see, you see what they're able to put, not just the time into their sport, but the money into their sport. You're like, oh man, that is, that is, that is tough. Um, yeah, because that's the thing, right? Because even if you have the best PT in the world, it, it's similar. So many people go through similar steps that you did in terms of, okay, there's something here that's not like an obvious thing, right? It's not like, all right, I tested the structure of your knee. It's an ACL tear, right? We'll get an MRI just to make sure, but we kind of know what it is. Or like, hey, your Achilles tendon has just like gone up your calf like a like a like a blind like like one of like the blinds in my daughter's room. Like, all right, we know that's a tear. You know what I mean? <laughs> When you have these sort of like, we kind of, we might know what it is. You see so many PTs and understandably so kind of like start like the, the first baby step, right? Like, all right, let's try to ice it. We'll do some dry needling. We'll do some massage. Okay. The rest isn't working. All right. Let's try this. Right. So it kind of progressively gets more serious and more involved in, in what they're doing. And when you got to the point of like, okay, now I'm going to need some sort of images into the hip. How long? In the process, were you, um, just from a time perspective? Yeah. So I had the injury mid-April, like the day that it started bothering me in that week. And then it was like two months in June is when we got the x-rays. So we really tried for several weeks, for almost two months, doing all these things. And it just wasn't getting better. And even at that point in time, it was one of those things that you just... You know, you don't want to wait too long because you don't want to lose too much fitness. You can still cross train and maintain a lot of fitness, but we were starting to get a little worried because we didn't know what was going to happen um, and how long it was going to go because it just didn't seem like it was resolving. And that's when we found out that I had the cam deformity. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. 
And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in the stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today is $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. So how were you mentally at that point? Once once the, the x-rays come back, you get the diagnosis of the can deformity, and then you look back at like, okay, not only do I have to start dealing with this moving forward, but what have we been doing the past two months? Like what was that what was that like for you negotiating that process? Because I've experienced that. I've experienced that recently. And I know so many of the people that I know have gone through that same process of like, I don't expect my PT to be perfect, but it's hard not to be like, oh, what a waste of time that was. Well, early on, I like to think that it was being conservative because you don't want to make something worse and actually be sidelined longer. 
Um, so I was being conservative, trying to make sure I did everything I could possibly control uh, right so that I could get back as soon as possible. Uh, I actually was uh, going to do the Boston Marathon. And so I was getting a little frustrated as that was coming up, uh, but then it ended up getting canceled. And so I honestly, I could not be more grateful for the timing of this injury because I was able to not have too much FOMO because a lot of things actually were getting canceled during that time. Um, you know, April, May, June, a lot of things were getting canceled. And so mentally it was definitely tough because I, you know, was on the elliptical every day and that's just a little more boring than being outside. Uh, but I was also really calm in that I didn't feel like I was missing races or missing out because everything was getting canceled. And a lot of those opportunities weren't even available just because of all the COVID pandemic stuff happening. And do you try to maintain a certain kind of mindset when you're at like your default level? Like by that, I mean, are you someone who's like, all right, I want to try to stay like pretty positive or is this just not something that you worry about uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? And I bring this up because when we're not able to do the things that we love, even if we know intellectually like this too shall pass, I can take, there's silver linings here. There's no races anyway. It can still be, you know, really tough to deal with. And it can be, it can, it can have this kind of nagging effect on our mindset and how we approach people in our life and all of that. Like, can you speak a little bit about not only like, not necessarily its effect on you, but how you try to approach situations and then ultimately what that push and pull was like? It was definitely difficult to navigate. Uh, I've always been the type that I've always looked for the silver linings. Um, you know, when I'm talking to somebody else about something they're stressed about or even myself, uh, I always try to look for a positive in every situation. Um, and there are definitely times when your emotions are, you know, they are real and you can get frustrated and you can be upset, but I don't let it linger. Um, I just say, you know, this is what's happening right now. And I really just, in regular training and even now, I just focus on what can I control in this moment. The things that are out of my control, they might make me upset. They might make me a little sad, but I can't spend too much time or energy or stress on those things because ultimately it's out of my control. So what were some of the things that you could control during this time that were important to you? And they don't necessarily have to be part of the running slash athletic process? Uh, that's a great, you said that perfectly because I do teach full time. And so we were very busy during this time transitioning everything to virtual teaching. And so that took up a lot of time and it actually kept my mind pretty occupied <laughs> because we had so much going on transitioning to virtual teaching. Um, and then I'm also a full-time PhD student. So I did I was able to allocate a lot of that time that I probably would have been spent stressing or running <laughs> towards those things. So I was still keeping pretty busy. And I think that staying busy rather than dwelling on those things was helpful. Absolutely. Were you able to, from a PhD perspective, were you able to speed up the timeline of what maybe you had envisioned doing the previous year? It's been about the same as what I had been planning. I still had to finish up coursework during that time. So I wasn't quite to a point where I could do my doctoral comps, my written and oral comps. Um, but I did do those in the fall. 
And that was another thing after surgery that I was able to spend a lot of time doing uh, and focusing on and writing. And even right now, I've still been able to, I've been, I'm in the dissertation phase right now. So still spending a lot of time on that. Uh, but it's my timeline to answer your question has been about the same. Okay. All right. So you got the CAN deformity diagnosis. What exactly is that? So a CAM deformity, and I teach radiologic sciences. So uh, as unfortunate oh, so you as it was... Your, you get to read your own, own <laughs> images. You don't even need to outsource it. Well, it was really fun. I've kept all my images, <laughs> and I'm starting to use them as teaching files. Um, so it was a good learning experience for me just to be in the patient's perspective of things. Uh, the CAM deformity means that there's a little bit of an extra growth on the head of the femoral bone, which is right up there in the hip joint. And that's something that's usually um, finishes developing when you finish growing. So I've probably had this for 10 plus years. Uh, but what they've said is that uh, in most people, it doesn't present as a problem. Um, they usually see it more often in like soccer players and hockey players, just because they are doing more of that lateral mo movement, movement, excuse me, or like biking and things where you actually have more of that hip flexion. Whereas running, you're usually pretty up, you know, upright and you're not really flexing your knees and doing that knee drive quite as much. So some people it presents in earlier. Some people it doesn't really give them a problem until later on in life when they start to have arthritis and issues like that. So with these deformities, it's called FAI, which is femoroacetabular impingement. So there's the cam deformity, which is on the head of the femur. And then you can also have a pincer deformity, which is on the pelvis. And luckily mine was just the femur one. So it's just on the femoral head. But after I got the x-rays, they showed that it had the cam deformity. And they said, okay, we need to get an MRI to check the labrum. And I'm actually board certified in x-ray, MRI, and CT. And ended up having all of those exams throughout this process. <laughs> but... The MRI at the time, this was in June, didn't show that my labrum was torn or detached or anything like that. So I went back to trying to just do physical therapy and cross train and try and get back to it. And this was going on for another two months with no change. So that was probably the hardest part was, well, they said nothing's wrong. Why am I still having problems? Um... Then I started to actually push it a little more because before I was being a little more conservative. I, I don't want to make it worse, but by four months, I was like, well, I need to really just kind of push it and see if there really is a problem. Um, you kind of start to second guess yourself. Am I making this up? Is, is this in my head? Um, and so I did start to push myself a little bit. I just tried some runs and I was just like, I'm just, you know, going to wing it. I'm going to see. And again, it was just like it was back in April. It wasn't getting any better. It was actually very painful, and uh, I had to have the discussions with my coach and with the doctor, and they basically said, if you don't want to be a runner anymore, you don't need to have the surgery now, but you're probably going to have to have it in a couple of years because it will eventually start to become arthritic because it's rubbing and agitating that joint, or you can have the surgery now and give yourself a shot and continue to run, and you can get back to doing what you love. And... When they said it that way, it made it a pretty easy decision. Yeah, if you're going to have it at some point anyway, it's not like if you tear your ACL at age 55, you're like, well, you're say goodbye to the softball team, but your knee's going to be fine if you just you know don't do anything crazy. Um, 
So when you were getting the PT, especially after you had all the imaging done, I'm like, okay, we're still going to do the PT work. We're not going to have the surgery yet. What were they hoping to accomplish in the PT work that would possibly eliminate surgery as an option? Yeah, a lot of it was trying to open up that space so that it wasn't impinging. And part of that was trying to stretch and do the needling and massage just to loosen up all the muscles around that joint space. Um, And it was actually really frustrating because it would just tighten right back up after doing all those treatments. Um, So it was definitely guarding that joint. Some of this in talking with my PT, we'd actually been working. I've always had a little bit of an anterior pelvic tilt, which is just where the pelvis is kind of tilted forward when you're running. And we had kind of been working to correct that. And again, this is one of those retrospect things. We think that as we were correcting that, it actually was bringing that joint into a more vulnerable position, Um, something that I had probably been compensating for for 10 or more years. Um, But once we got it into that more corrected position, it wasn't really corrected for me. And that's what I think made my joint more vulnerable. Talk about be careful what you wish for. Holy cow. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm laughing. People who are listening to this can't see me. As soon as you mentioned the interior, um, what's it called? The interior pelvic tilt. I I should remember that pretty, pretty easily because I just got diagnosed with that today. And I did all this research this afternoon on interior pelvic tilt. Um, they're like, this is really common. I'm like, how come I never heard of this before? I feel like I talked about running a pretty good amount at this point. But here I am learning about something that affects, you know, affects a lot of people. I'm like the classic case. We're like, the butt is out. The belly is out. Like, I feel like if they, when they do like the, the models of what interior pelvic tilt is, they could just like take a picture of me walking my dog and be like, that guy, he's got it. <laughs> so, um, I, I definitely, you know, it's, it's funny how, how that works out. It's so interesting to hear like how people go through this and like, is this going to matter? Is this going to matter? We'll do this. But then the, un, the unintended consequences, the domino effect, it makes you wonder how anybody ran like before treatments. Like, how did that work? Yeah. It's funny that you bring that up because in the conversations I've had, the same thing is the case with the FAI, the impingement, Um, because really until we figured out what was going on, it just wasn't being diagnosed because we just didn't know what it was. And it's so hard to diagnose, uh, at least before we knew what to look for. And I actually did go look at a lot of research studies and FAI is more common than you realize. There's been studies that they've looked at just random people that aren't even having symptoms and they have it, but it's not, it's not a problem. Um, it's just, you start to see it more diagnosed when, when we know to look for it and you get these specialists that are, you know, looking specifically for those things. Right. Right. It just makes the process so hard, right? Cause you, it, it, there's, there's so many things it could be and you try to figure out all the stuff and you need all the technology, all the imaging. And then even then, you're like, all right, but it's still, we're still going to do this because this is going to work. Is this not going to work? And obviously, surgery isn't something that anyone wants to dive into. No one's going to be pumped about that. But it is nice to say, okay, is this the final hurdle? Is this going to be the last thing? So for you personally, what was it like post-surgery in terms of, is this now fixed? Can we just recover and move on? Or are there more steps here unforeseen, uh, possibly uh, things that, that that could crop up? What was that process like? 
Yeah. Post-surgery was honestly the hardest. And I feel like I'm still, I'm still building back up. It's been a very, very long process, much longer than I anticipated. Uh, after surgery, that first week was so hard. It was... Oh, so when, oh, when was surgery? I'm sorry, I should have asked. I had surgery in August, so mid-August. Okay. So it was really, really hard, a lot harder than I anticipated. Uh, I could, I felt like I could hardly move. And they told me I could do 50% weight bearing on the crutches, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could even do that. It was really, really challenging. And I'd get up and the pain would be so much that I would get nauseous. Um, and I didn't anticipate that because I'm used to running. Yeah. I think all of us runners can relate. We're used to running. We were used to pain. Um, but that was just a different level. It was, it was challenging. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a couple people that had reached out to me uh, that had had the same thing and they were willing to talk to me about it. So it was really good to hear their experiences. That's some things I did in the first couple of weeks was talk to them, ask them what it was like for them early on, some of the things that they did to help, what was normal, what was not. Uh, but they have a very strict regimen. The physician that I went to that did my surgery, I had to go to sur- or to PT one week after and then two weeks after, and then it was almost weekly for the first month or so, and then we started doing every two weeks. Uh, they originally said that I would only be on crutches for three to five weeks, but I ended up being on crutches for three months. So it was not what I had anticipated at all. Taylor Ward, of all the things, right? You're sitting there like, listen, I am one of the best runners in the country. You say three <laughs> to five weeks. I'm going to get off these things in two weeks. You're not thinking like, you know what? No, Doc, this is going to be three months. We're going to extend this timeline way past what you'd expect. That must have been such a trial. It was. It was hard because what happened, and this wasn't necessarily something with the surgery, but my body's response to it, what we found was that the whole joint space just got really inflamed and it just wasn't calming down. Um, so we had to decide to do um, prednisone, which was not fun, but that was to calm like the whole body system, immune system down, just that inflammatory response. Um, and then we had to go in directly to the joint <laughs> and put some anti-inflammatories in there, but I had to wait till three months to do that because they were worried about infection just because of the surgery site. So once that was taken care of, I definitely saw a lot more progress and it was crazy. It was like a fog lifted. I didn't realize how much pain I truly was in until it wasn't there. So you had a, you got a cortisone shot for Christmas. Is that, is that, yeah, is that kind of how it worked out? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> oh my God. So did they, were they able to identify, not that it matters after the fact, but were they able to identify why your joint flamed up so much compared to what they thought would happen? Yeah, I guess I forgot to mention that. When they went into surgery, the labrum was completely detached. So it was off. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, so they went in and they had to do more than just... Because what they do for the surgery, what they were planning on was just shaving the bone, uh, that cam deformity. But then they had to fix the labrum. So they had to cinch it back. Uh, put it back in place, basically stitches up in there to hold it back in place. And so they did say that because of how much I was running and how much I had put on it, 
it was probably so inflamed for so long that that probably contributed to the longer recovery time because it was just, it was in such bad shape by the time they got in there that it just needed more time. Right. And it makes me also wonder, like, the labrum tear must have been, like, such like a weird thing for the PT to deal with because they're like, all right, we just got the imaging. The labrum's fine, but why is it so tight in here? Right. So they're doing all this stuff to loosen it up, not realizing that that's not going to work because the labrum's torn, but they were just told the labrum wasn't torn. Oh, my gosh. And around and around you go. So you mentioned that this has taken a long time. You're still working through this. And I want to talk about that part of the process as well. Right now, are you working more through the cam deformity part of the surgery or the labrum tear part of the surgery? Right now, honestly, I am out of both of those. It's just a matter of slowly building back tolerance to running. (laughs) So I'm not back to the level that I was, at least the volume of what I was. I'm not doing speed work or anything like that yet. Uh, But they have done some gait analysis. Um, The physical therapy place through where I did surgery, they offer that. And when I did the first one, I've done a couple of them now because I am fascinated by it and it's interesting to see, but they said, you know, you're not running at this point like someone who just had surgery or had this surgery would run. So I'm not compensating for that, which is a great sign to see not having really any issues with that right now. It's just building up the muscles and the tolerance uh, because of being on crutches for so long, you want to be careful about not building too much and getting a stress fracture uh, and those types of things. So I'm very fortunate to be where I am and it's really not a whole lot compared to where I've been, but I'm just so grateful to be able to get outside and to move and to run. Oh, and and I'm so happy for you. Lord knows, but I am so interested to hear what your, your take on the gate analysis part of this. I've never done it. But there's certain things where, like, I can imagine it being kind of a tricky situation, right? Because everybody runs different, right? Even elite, you, you can compare elite runners, and there's there can be so many differences. Um, it's not sometimes I would compare it to a golf swing, but the golf swing is similar. Like if you just stop the tape at impact, they all look the same, right? So they get they get it's like there's like a lot of different ways, <laughs> a lot of different roads to get to the city, but they're all in the city at, at, you know, once, once they're hitting the ball. But even with running, it can look so different. So as someone who's not only a professional runner, who's an incredible athlete, but who's also certified in reading, you know, different, you know, the, 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 the radiology work, all the scans, like you are very much into the idea of looking at someone's body and trying to diagnose what's going on, what is happening, what has happened, what has what is your take on gait analysis? When is it useful and things like that? Because for so many people uh, who are listening to this, I'm sure they're aware of what gait analysis is. Of people, you know, analyzing your stride and trying to take you know cues from that to say, all right, here's some things we can work on. So not only the process of of gait analysis itself, but also trying to change someone's gaits depending on that analysis. Gait analysis is fascinating. It's crazy what they're able to see. Uh, they do a, they have a treadmill. It's a special treadmill that can detect the force and the torque and all of those things. They set up the reflectors all over the body and then they have you run. Uh, from a post-surgery standpoint, I think it's so beneficial because it helps you to identify if you are compensating because those little things, or even if they're a big thing, 
post-surgery, that can cause future problems later on. Uh, and that's part of the physical therapy process is just making sure that you can return to functioning normally and not causing issues with that same hip or even your opposite hip if you're compensating. So I think it is fascinating to see what the gait analysis does. In terms of what they're able to see, they're able to look at the different angles. They're able to see your foot strike. Uh, they can identify if your foot's kind of flaring from one side to the other. Or uh, in some of my cases, they saw that my femur was kind of rotating inward just a little bit, which we kind of determined was part of just some muscle like the hip flexors, which they, at least in my case, because I had had that deformity for so long, they think that my hip flexors were chronically tight. And that's something we are still working working on is strengthening and lengthening that. Um, but that's something that I think is common with a lot of runners is tight hip flexors. But I'm definitely of the belief that unless there's something drastically wrong, everybody's gait is different. And if it feels forced to try and do something, then it's often not going to be a good result. It's something that it should, if you try to change something, it actually feels better. Uh, they did give me some cues to try. And I was like, oh, wow, I actually am feeling that pressure off my hip flexors. That actually does feel better. Um, if that's the case, then it takes a little work and a little time to make those adjustments. But ultimately, it's going to make you more efficient and less likely to injure yourself. But if it feels forced and you just find yourself re regressing back to your old form and it just feels better, then maybe that's what's best for you. Uh, I think that people fall into trying to change their gait way too much and end up running into more issues because of it. Right. And then there's also been, again, I think this is more anecdotal than a you know traditional medical study. But the idea of like, hey, not that your gait shouldn't change over time, but it should be changed for like a um like the the reason like, hey, you're getting stronger as a runner. So your gait changes, right? So instead of like instead of like the tail wagging the dog in a sense, right? So you have like, oh no, you're getting stronger as a runner. Oh, you're doing these strength workouts or you're doing extra strides, your turnovers changing, right? So these sorts of things can change your gait and um, as a way that like, your gait is change, changing to adapt to the stresses that it, that you're that you're putting on it, in addition to you just getting potentially stronger as an athlete, as opposed to saying, "Hey, okay, if I just move my knee four more degrees to the lateral side, then it will open up this." And then it seems like it would be so easy to get in your own head on some of this stuff. Yeah, that's something you just have to be. I, you would, I would not recommend someone just to try and change their stride without someone that's very knowledgeable about it and someone that's specifically used to working with runners. Right. So don't have your daughter like film you with the iPhone and trying to like figure it out on the, on, during iMovie or anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like you're feeling pretty close to healthy. But just not from a training perspective where you'd want to be ideally, but hopefully you're going to get back there. So what is the timeline now in terms of progressing through your training in a fashion that aligns with you kind of achieving that elite level fitness that you've experienced so many times in your life? And at what point do you start to introduce races into the calendar? Yeah, at this point, I'm still not uh, set in stone with a timeline. I've Taken the, uh, the mantra that I've been using is when my body lets me, it will go. And I think that I've just had to be very patient with listening to my body. The return back to running, 
the first time I ran was actually the first gait analysis, which was terrifying because they're like, okay, <laughs> just run. And I said, well, this is the first time I've run since surgery. <laughs> but uh, it's been every other day. So I'm still cross training. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an elliptigo. They helped me out. So shout out to them. Um, hey. They able to help me get an elliptigo. So now, now you're finally able to get outside yes. with the elliptical, which yep. you've been hoping for for so long. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm doing runs every other day. And what I would do is I would start with the elliptical and then go run and then get back on the ellipticals. That way I could still get good volume of training. So I was still getting, um, I had to build up to it, but getting up to 60 to 70 minutes of time spent working out. And then I would slowly increase the running part and decrease the elliptical to where I was getting uh, more running and less elliptical. And so Last week, I was able to get up to 60 minutes of running, eight miles, which I was really excited for. Uh, still just every other day, and then the ellipticals on the off days. And there's been a lot of little bumps here and there where something flares up, and I have to take a couple days off and back up. Um, this last weekend, I actually had a little bit of a strain in my glute. I think it was just because I was starting to go a little bit faster. So I had to back off for a couple days and... I think it's just one of those things that you take two steps forward, one step back, and you just have to be patient with it. So I'd like to get to a point where I am running every day and I will have a lot better of a feel as to, you know, what my timeline might look like. I think once I'm running every day and starting to do doubles where I'm running twice a day, then I think, you know, I could probably do a training block and be ready by the end of the year is what I'm thinking. but. I think that end of the year, November, December would be the earliest that I would try doing any type of a race. So when do, not when, how, how does the decision-making process go for deciding, okay, now I'm going to start running consecutive days or like now I'm going to start doing doubles. Obviously the doubles part is going to be farther down the line, but the decision-making point of like when to introduce more stress without it just being like, a test, right? Because obviously, as you mentioned, you don't want to be doing two steps forward, one step back all the time. And certainly don't want to do one step forward, two steps back. So (laughs) (laughs) what's it like knowing when and how to kind of introduce these next steps in the regimen? Yeah, I take a lot of advice from both the PT uh, that I work with and also from my coach. My coach, uh, Paul Pilkington, is very knowledgeable in terms of the training and he's good at building people up and he does a good job of being conservative with someone that's coming back from injury, just so that you don't put too much stress on too fast. So I think we're getting close to that point to getting to running every day. Now that we're up to 60 minutes, that's typically what my normal, you know, 60 to 70 minutes would be a normal longer run during my training regimen. So I think that, and this is really unknown waters for me. I've never come back from something like this. I've just always been able to kind of just jump right back in. So this has been a very slow progression. But what I am planning to do is when I start trying to run every day, I might incorporate some light speed running on the treadmill. I'm not sure if you're familiar with light speed, uh, but it's the harnesses that are hooked up with your treadmill. Yeah, they have like the, like the, almost like the bungee cord type thing. Yes. Yep. So that's something that I think will help to be start running every day, but it takes a little bit of the load off so that it's not too much stress too fast, but I'm still able to 
start progressing into running every day. So that's the plan right now. That makes sense. Yeah, right. Because that is like kind of a way of easing into it uh, in a matter of speaking. And, you know, certainly... (laughs) It's like, man, every little thing, right? Every little thing as you continue to go. Can you talk to me about what you do pre-run and how that has evolved over time? Yeah, I definitely need a little more time to get warmed up. So I've actually found that, you know, I have the elliptical just on the stationary. And I like to start out with, you know, 10, 15 minutes of just doing elliptical before I go out on the run. Um, if I don't have that availability, uh, I have some of the hip flexor training that I can do. I actually just, it's a really simple and fast exercise that you put the, um, like an elastic band, a little rubber band, um, on both of your feet. And then I just do a couple of my hip flexor activation exercises. And that just kind of gets the glutes and the hip flexors firing, um, before I start running. So I definitely have had to take a little extra time before runs. Uh, I don't like to do too much static stretching. I like it to be a little bit more dynamic where I'm walking around, I'm using the bands, I'm just kind of getting things moving and activated before I start to run. I can't just go out and run as quickly as I used to. I know, right? As I'm going through um, whatever injuries I'm going through, other people are doing it. You're doing it. What it always brings to mind is like, you read like a book, like Chris McDougall's like born to run. And you're like, I love this idea. And then you go through an injury. You're like, no one's born to do this. Like, <laughs> like didn't have a PT. What's going on here? Right. Right. <laughs> I found that I have a lot of benefits from doing a lot of the things afterwards. So things like the stretching after you're warmed up. Uh, and doing a lot of the strength training when you're a little more fatigued. I found that that has really helped in the process too. So was that not something that you were doing previously? I was a little bit. During my regular training regimen, I would do strength training twice a week on harder workout days. So I would still be applying that same concept. But it's a little different now because I'm doing things that are more specific to, you know, this injury and these weaknesses that I've um, found. <laughs> All right. So, are, what's it like for you moving forward? You're a P, you're you know you're finishing up a PhD program. You're teaching at Weber State, which is your alma mater. You're doing some some really exciting things. Yet, you're working all this time to get back to running, right? You're not doing this to be an active person. So, what's it like looking forward to say, hey, in three years, in five years, what do I want to say that I've done? Like, when you extrapolate that out in terms of your longer-term goals, how what are they now, and have, have they changed at all? Yeah, I've definitely got big goals, and that's that was the huge uh, defining factor that led me to have the surgery. Um, as counterintuitive, counterintuitive as it might have sounded, I wanted to give myself the best shot, uh, and I knew that this was the best thing. Uh, by getting rid of that impingement, I am able, I've been proved my form. Uh, so that's something that is actually already being seen based off of these gait analyses that I've done. And I'm really, really excited. I know that once my body lets me, I'll be able to build that fitness back. And so I'm very fortunate. Um, my sponsor, you can, has continued to support me. Um, and that's something that I'm really excited to, you know, you know, they're going to help me, you know, when it comes back to getting into the racing. And my goals, I would definitely, I plan to qualify for the next Olympic trials. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't looked. Um, 
I haven't really looked as closely at races and things just because I'm it's like, okay, I got to focus on just getting back first. But I want to qualify for the next Olympic trials. I do want to run all the world major marathons that's been on my bucket list for a long time. And honestly, I want to give myself the best shot to make the 2024 team, you know, and I know that's a bold goal, but it's something that I know that I can put myself in a position. And I know that by that timeline, I can be ready and fit. And I think that by having this surgery and this injury when I did, I think that I have plenty of time to get back to that fitness and even better. Uh, I'm really excited too, because there are some girls in the area that I believe I can start training with in the next year or so. And that's going to be really fun to be able to work together because with my working schedule, working full time and being a student, I do a lot of my runs before and after work and kind of fitting it in. And so I do a lot of solo training. And I think being able to have some training partners and things like that will also be really fun to, to have. Well, Weber State, man, you guys are kicking butt up there. Maybe a lot of people may not know this because they might not even know where Weber State is. But you guys have a wonderful program. You guys do amazing things. I know that you're out there supporting the team even this year. Uh, which I know during the COVID year, not everything was was normal in college athletics, but you were out there. Um, what's it like seeing that the team continue to flourish, not only as someone who's been an alum, but someone who's still there on campus? Yeah, I've absolutely loved being a part of uh, seeing these girls and the guys too, but just seeing the team grow. Um, they've been so resilient and it's been really hard uh, for them, especially, you know, it was for a lot of them, it was their senior year that got canceled because of COVID. And so they've been training for this senior season for a whole year. And it's been really rewarding to see them push through and work so hard. Uh, you sound like you're familiar with Weber State, but we have our, uh, our top girl, Lexi Thompson in the 5k, 10k. Um, when I first moved back, I used to live in Auburn, Alabama while my husband and I were there for his grad school. When we moved back to Ogden and I started working at Weber State, she would run with me and not a lot of the girls on the team would come and run with me. And I just remember her pushing so hard and it's really paid off for her. It's been fun to see. And I think that she's got a lot of potential past college. And I think a lot of the girls are in that same boat where coach Pilkington knows how to develop athletes, not just for college, but for, you know, running beyond whether they choose to do it professionally or just for fun. Um, it's something that you can continue to do throughout your life. And Coach Pilkington and his wife, Anna, are huge examples to me of what I'd like to be when, when I'm older because they still get out and run every day. They run on the trails and they love it because they just love running. And that's something that I want to continue to have. And I plan to continue to run, even if I'm not competing, you know, later on down the road. Uh, I truly, when it comes down to it, running is, is a passion of mine and it's a lifestyle. It's part of what I do. Well, thank you for sharing so much of this with us and just taking a complete deep dive into basically a 12-month process uh, of you and your injury is something that I know a lot of people can take a lot from because they are either negotiating a process like this or maybe they're at the same spot you are where they can potentially see the end, the light of the tunnel, but maybe their motivation is waning. What am I doing all this for? Is this going to matter? Um, ultimately, here you are. You're doing something very similar, right? You're pushing forward. You got these huge long-term goals. 
even though you could be doing something else. And it just shows that like it can mean so much to so many of us, no matter what our future ambitions may be. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so happy to have been here. It's been fun to chat. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on this show. I learned so much in this episode. I really did. She is an absolutely incredible person. I am so excited to root her on in the years to come. I'm just so excited for her in the next Olympic cycle to, to get back at it and see if she can reach the heights that she's obviously aspiring to and working so hard to get to. Also, like I said in the intro, got the new offer out there. If you are interested in potentially having me as your running coach, we got the free coaching consultation call. We can talk 15, 20, 30 minutes, see what's going on with you, see if I can help you reach your goals. And if you feel good about it, hey, we can move forward. And if we're not a good fit, hey, no harm, no foul, you move on to the next one. And I'm excited to do that with you. You can reach me over on Instagram, rambling underscore runner or on my email address, ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.